Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of a Max Potential Habits podcast. I am so excited to be here today with an author who I have sent to so many people. Working with men, as you know, if you've been following me for a while, is something that I love doing. About 95% of my clients are men, and I have noticed a common thread with men that there is something called what, what Dr. Robert Glover, who is our incredible guest today, calls, Mr., uh, calls nice guy syndrome. So he's written a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. I actually read it a couple of times. I have it on Audible, I have it in hardback because there are so many valuable tips for those of you who struggle with being nice. Now I know this is directed at men, but if you're a woman, I've read this book for myself and for my clients and there are endless tips. We're gonna have an incredible conversation because Dr. Glover has over 30 years of experience as a therapist, coach, educator, and public speaker. He's been self-employed since 19, you said 1980? I, I haven't gotten a paycheck since 1988. <laughs> awesome, 1988. So a powerful business owner, a powerful man studying masculinity, toxic shame, all of the things that cause men to not show up powerfully in the world. And we're gonna have an incredible conversation today. You'll learn more about him. So welcome on the show, Dr. Glover. Amanda, thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Awesome. So give us a little background. Tell, for those of us listening who have never met you, how did you get into the world of working with men? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, it all started when I was a little child. So uh, yeah, short version is that um, I actually started out to go into the ministry. I've got two degrees in religion. I grew up in a fairly fundamental Christian church. And my first semester of college, I took psychology 101 and fell in love with it. And I thought, this is cool. I, I like understanding how people tick and what makes me tick and other people. And so um, from there, I, I kind of adapted my education towards counseling and then uh, got my master's degree in marriage and family therapy and then a PhD in marriage and family therapy. So I started out my career as a minister and then segued from there into a marriage and family therapist and did that 25 plus years. Now, in the process of, of doing working with couples, um, also, I was struggling in my own relationships and so got into some therapy to try to figure out why being a nice guy didn't make my then wife respond to me better, treat me better, be happier. And uh, actually went into counseling trying to figure out why being a nice guy didn't work. And um, luckily, I, I, I fell into some, some good programs. I got into a 12-step group and then with a therapist and then a men's group for several years where I learned some things around setting boundaries, around I need a priority about being honest, about being transparent, about asking for what I want. And um, what I noticed while I was kind of doing this work on myself, that a lot of the couples coming to work with me in couples therapy, the men were saying like a lot of the same stuff I'd been saying in my marriage at that time. You know, I'm a nice guy. I treat her well. I treat her better than her ex. I'm raising her kids. You know, I, uh, you know, I'll give her, I'll do anything to make her happy. It's never good enough. She's never happy. She's mad all the time. She never wants to have sex anymore. Like all these guys, I could finish their sentences. And I thought, wow, I'm not the only one 
thinking this whole kind of, if I just be nice and treat them well and give them a lot and don't rock the boat and avoid conflict and all that stuff nice guys do, then, then the people in my life will be happy and appreciate me. Well, it didn't work. And um, so I started a No More Mr. Nice Guy men's group now 25 plus years ago. We met every other Wednesday. And so every Wednesday I wrote and just started writing things I was kind of discovering about what I came to call nice guy syndrome, um, how we get to be that way, um, what, what the thinking is of a nice guy, um, what, what we do that doesn't work, and, you know, the other side of that, what to do that works more effectively. And um, while I was just giving these kind of chapters every other week when I met with the men's group, these guys and their wives and girlfriends were all saying, you need to write a book. You need to go on Oprah. There's, there's a lot of people need this. So that was like 25 plus years ago. So it took about six, seven years to write the book, another three years or so to get it published. It came out in print version in 2003. So we're at 2000, coming up 2020. So, you know, 17 years ago it came out and, um, Thanks to people like you, uh, it keeps selling more and more uh, every year. So, so that's good. It's uh, I bump into a lot of people that recommend it a lot, and it seems to be really, you know, affecting a lot of people, men and women around yeah. the world. So, so that's how I got directed towards the whole nice guy thing. And then, kind of over time in private practice, my work just kind of kept skewing more and more towards men. And then when I when I got out of the um, that marriage with my second wife about seventeen years ago. Um, really just pretty much focused my work towards men after that. And then about 10 years ago, I, I moved to Puerto Vallarta, New Mexico, quit doing private practice, just do online consultation. I have an online university where I teach courses, but and do workshops and seminars. And, and But mainly, I've just fallen in love with working with men. I, I just love, I love the dynamic of working with men. I love it that men really do want to be good people. And mm -hmm. uh, really do want to be trustable and really do want to treat people well. And um, just it's, it's the nice guy paradigm that gets in the way. And we can talk more about that of why it doesn't work so well. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I was, I was just telling you just this last weekend, I was in Miami Beach speaking at a conference for men that I was mm -hmm. invited to. And I just I just love that worldwide men are just thirsting and seeking help and information because they, they do want to live good lives. They do want to be good men. Yeah, absolutely. I love this. So will you, for listeners, define, that, let's start with nice guy syndrome. What, what does sure. that mean? What does that look like? All right. I, I define a nice guy as, as a person. This is, this is a man or woman, by the way. As you said, you got a lot out of the book. Women write me all the time, say they've gotten a lot out of the book. This really is, is about codependency, but it's directed at yeah. how that tends to manifest in men. Yeah. Uh, even though I don't use the word codependency in the book, I did that intentionally. Yeah. I didn't want people to come with preconceived ideas. Very um, wise. But, yeah. but a nice guy. So when I say nice guy, I'm speaking generically for men and women. But a nice guy is a person who doesn't believe he's okay just as he is. And we can talk about how that gets internalized at a young age. But he typically believes I have to become what I think other people want me to be in order to get loved and liked and get my needs met. And I have to hide anything about me that might trigger negative reactions in other people, like hide my needs or my sexuality or my, my failings or my insecurities. So basically, a nice guy is a person who's, who's both disconnected from himself because he's not just walking the planet being okay with being him. He's kind of constantly holding the finger up, see which way the wind's blowing. Well, I need to become that with this person or hide this from that person. And, um, and as we'll talk about, 
because of these patterns, nice guys are often anything but nice because they're not authentic. They're not transparent. They're often not very honest. So this is a survival mechanism that, that young boys and young girls typically develop at a very young age to, to, to again, try to create a sense of security, a sense of well-being, to be loved, to be liked, and get their needs met. So powerful. You know, it makes me think about one of those core needs where we all want to be accepted and approved of and fit in. And so we mask ourselves so that other people like us, but it's impossible to have everyone else like you when you're not authentic because you're trying to put on so many different versions of yourself and you can't please everybody. Well, you can't. And um, so let me just throw this out there because this, this, this is so true. In, in general, nice guys operate by three what I call covert contracts. And, and they're covert, meaning that the nice guy himself often is not even conscious of them, and nobody else is either. And they're all an if-then giving-to-get proposition. And the first one, first covert contract of nice guy syndrome is if I'm a, if I'm a good guy, then people will like me and love me. And as you said, not everybody's going to like us and love us. And if they do, it's not because we're a good guy. It's because we're us. We're authentic. We're real. The second covert contract of nice guy syndrome is if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will meet my needs without me having to ask. Now, this one breaks down in a lot of different ways because usually we're giving to other people what we need to give them, not necessarily what they need to receive. Mm -hmm. They don't know that there's a contract that they're supposed to be reading our minds and giving back to us. And, and we can go into this more if you want, nice guys are, ter are typically terrible receivers. We're actually not very good at receiving, even though we have all these covert contracts of giving to other people, hoping to get back appreciation, love, validation, or whatever other goodies we're hoping they'll give back. And then the third covert contract of nice guy syndrome is if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth problem-free world. Mm. Now, of course, nobody ever does anything right, ever right all the time. Yeah. And, and, and who's the scorekeeper and where's the rule book for that anyway? But we don't live in a smooth problem-free world. And so when nice guys believe they've carried out their side of three, these three covert contracts. I'll be good, and therefore I'll be liked and loved. I'll meet other people's needs, therefore they'll meet my needs. Uh, I'll, I'll do everything right, then I'll have a smooth, problem-free life. And when it doesn't go that way, nice guys often get really frustrated, really resentful, can be very passive-aggressive, and can even be somewhat violent and hurtful when they have something that my ex-wife used to call my victim pukes, you know, where stuff builds up, builds up, builds up, and you're so frustrated and resentful, and you're rehearsing all these conversations, and you're pleading your case to that giant referee in the sky that he should call a foul on this person because they're not keeping their side of the contract, and then finally something happens and it all just blows up, and the other person doesn't know what just happened. So again, nice guys can often be anything but nice, and because these covert contracts don't work, Nice guys stay perpetually frustrated because yeah. they don't tend to get what they want and they see other people getting those things, you know, being liked and loved and getting their needs met and having good lives. And the nice guy says, how come they get that? And I'm not. I'm doing it right. And yeah. so this paradigm of the nice guy syndrome can be really both really painful and dysfunctional for the nice guy or nice girl themselves, but also for all the people around them. 
Oh, this is brilliant. I, I, I want to dig deeper. I, I, at first, I want to highlight for everyone listening, it's so powerful to think of that as the covert contract. I love that you say that because it's something that's hidden. It's operating and it, what oper- it's what operates for the nice guy. And then it's hidden. So both people or anyone in the exchange with the nice guy notice it's there, but it's hard to articulate. So then how do you do anything with it? Right. So it's all this frustration and irritation and anger and unspoken expectations leading to resentment. And then it comes out often. I mean, for what you're saying and, you know, in masculinity studies, there's a lot of times where men aren't really allowed to have their feelings in in the way that we've constructed society. So then they get angry because it's the easiest outlet and it's the one that men are allowed to express in a certain way. Would you agree with that? Yeah. You know, and, and, and this is where it gets really tricky for nice guys because we don't think we're supposed to be able to get angry either yeah, because that, that yeah. would make us bad men. Most yeah. nice guys are trying to be different from the stereotypical male, the, 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 the man we heard our mothers complain about, i.e. our yeah. dad, um, the, uh-huh. the, the men we heard women complain about when we were in junior high and high school and the women complained about all the jerks that treated them bad. Oh, I'll be different from that. And I even grew up during the 60s where, you know, the, the, with some aspects of radical feminism that, you know, you know, men are the cause of all the problems in the world and every man's a rapist and women need a man like a fish needs a bicycle and all those men. I grew up hearing that stuff. Thinking, I don't want to yeah. be that guy. Right. Yeah. So that even means I can't get angry or I yeah. can't be selfish or I can't ask for what I want. Or, and so what happens is that just leads to just bunches of frustration. And, yeah. and if it does come, you know, puking out, um, it, it's not at all nice. And I remember again, you know, I did most of this work when I was in my second marriage. I was married to my second wife for 14 years. And like I'd have one of these victim pukes where I would just vomit everything I'd been, you know, storing up inside. And like, you know, when it all settled down, she'd say, you know, I didn't see any of that coming. She said, did it ever cross you? She said, how long has this thing been bothering you? And I said, (laughs) six months, maybe. And she'd, she'd ask me, did it ever cross your mind to just tell me? Say something? (laughs) No. And that was the honest truth. It never crossed my mind. I could just say, I don't like it when you do that. Or I would like you to do this, please. Because, again, I I wasn't trained that that was okay to even do anything that might cause anybody to be upset. I had to, you know, rock the boat, keep the peace, you know, be, be that needless, wantless, you know. Yeah, you know, don't yeah, it will fall under that. Do everything right, you know. If you're doing everything yeah. right, you don't really, ha- you're not supposed to really have too many needs. <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and I was trying to not be like those bad men that I'd heard my mother and when yeah. I complained about that got angry or that were selfish or yeah. narcissistic or abusive. I was trying. Oh, I can't be that guy either. So yeah, yeah. so kind of that that masculine stereotype works against nice guys and that that Mm -hmm. kind of becomes the thing we're trying not to be. And so we we just become really repressed and frustrated, but unfortunately not so nice in so many other ways. Yeah. You know, Robert, do you think uh, what what I hear you saying is that there's an internalization of the anger because you don't want to outwardly express it. So then what does that show up as symptomatically and kind of practically speaking in the life of a nice guy? Well, that's a good question. And And, you know, I I like that because it gets internalized. Remember I said that for the nice guy, on one level, they're trying to become what they think other people want them to be, and they're hiding anything that they think might get a negative reaction. So anger is just one of those things. 
things. Yeah. And you know, we, all, we all get angry. We, we all have frustrating moments. Um, so whether, again, it be anger, our needs, our sexuality, any uncomfortable feeling, um, you know, our mistakes, anything, we'll, we'll hide all of that. Now, if you spend all that time hiding, just imagine the emotional energy it takes to keep all that stuff pushed down and below the surface in our psyche. It gets stored in our body. It gets stored in our emotions, but we don't know it because we numb ourselves to it. Mm -hmm. So uh, one symptom that often the nice guy, him or herself is not aware of, um, that's very prevalent for, for people with nice guy syndrome is depression. Now, mm. what we often don't know that because it's, it's not okay to be depressed either. Right. And we got to hide that. So it's often a very low-grade depression, even if the person is trying like to be happy all the time because that's yeah. what we're supposed to be, right? To, yeah. so people like us. We have to be happy. So it's this low-grade depression. Um, nice guys tend to have a lot of hidden addictive behavior. In men especially, a lot of hidden sexual behavior and sexual acting out. I, I, if I'd take a stab at it after 25 years of working with nice guys, I'd say probably 80% of the men I work with have some kind of hidden sexual behavior, usually around porn or other sexual acting out, because sex is a strong need. It's a strong part of who we are. It's a strong drive. But if we think being sexual makes us bad or that people will react negatively to our sexual desires or wants or just our sexual self. And then we hide it. It is so powerful. It's got to go somewhere. So it goes yeah. underground and it seeps out in these not so nice ways again. So nice yeah. guys didn't often have a lot of shame because of all the things they're hiding. Uh, you know, the shame goes back to childhood to internalize beliefs about ourselves, but it just gets compounded with everything we hide all of our frustrations, all of the repressed feelings. So, so to answer your question, we've got this, this depression we pack around. We, we've got, um, it gets stored up in our body, emotions, repressed sexuality, acting out, addictive behavior. Um, and that, that doesn't even count, like I said, all the inauthentic behavior, dishonest behavior, closed off behavior. Um, and again, yeah. the, the nice guy pays the price, and so do the, the people around him. And ironically, you know, and this is hard for the nice guy to understand because it doesn't fit our paradigm, our roadmap of, of how we fit into the world and get our needs met. As I say in the book, people are not attracted to perfect people. People are attracted to people with rough edges, something that yeah. we can relate to. And um, so, for example, one of the things I'll often do with, with guys in like small in groups or workshops is I'll pair them up and, and they'll like say to each other, what I don't want you to know about me is and just share something that you have some degree of shame or embarrassment to reveal. And then and then we'll do it again and again. And and what is funny is that when people actually tell you these things about them that they don't really want you to know, you actually kind of like them better. And, and you feel more comfortable with them. Yeah, and you can kind totally. of even have empathy. And you go, yeah, I do that too. Or, oh, man, you're cool. I, I mean, I, I got no judgment of you at all. And we're all just going, huh? Well, I thought everybody would judge me for this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So once, you, once a nice guy can, and this is what I really preach a lot, is, is find safe people. Put you, you know, whether it's a coach, a therapist, a 12-step group, a men's program, your minister, your best friend, usually not your wife or family or girlfriend because they've got a certain agenda in wanting you to be a certain way and might take offense. Like if you, yeah. your wife or girlfriend, oh yeah, I'm obsessed with looking at, you know, lesbian porn. And your yeah. girlfriend's going, what, what? But yeah. you can tell that to safe people. 
right? Yeah. And, and learn to start letting that shame out and that sense that I'm not okay and get, get reflected back that, no, you're just human. Yeah. You're just yeah. a flawed, flawed, imperfect, perfectly imperfect human being. Oh, this is so powerful. You know, it reminds me so much of when I started doing my coaching work. Part of one of the gifts was that I started to work on my own shame around, you know, I started into coaching because I had an affair. I left my 15-year marriage having an affair and I had a lot of shame around it. And, you know, I have a history of all kinds of, you know, like a traumatic childhood type of things in some areas. And I had shame and fear and I didn't want to share it. And then as I started moving into the world of uh working through trauma. I started working with incarcerated men and I did life history interviews and looking wow. at, at toxic masculinity wow. and men as, as victims instead of perpetrators and that kind of thing. Yeah. And one of the biggest gifts that they would tell me I gave them was just sitting and listening to the things that they had done that they had never told anybody before about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's that letting it go, it, 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 just saying it out loud to another person allows you to release some of the shame around it. And then you also realize other people have had similar experiences, so you don't feel so alone. And mm -hmm. then you start to realize it feels really good to share this. And I've noticed in, with my coaching clients, especially men, I think they feel really comfortable talking to me because I'm open about my stuff. And so yes. they realize like, oh, it's okay to be revealed about the things that would typically other people might read as shameful. And so I think one of the greatest gifts as coaches that we, or coaches, therapists, you know, people who are helping others overcome those places is helping them overcome the shame cycle because you feel oh. shame. So then you do things that cause more shame and then you feel more shame about that. And it's just this never ending loop. And it's torture for someone who's trying to be quote unquote, perfect and nice and do the right things. It just keeps the loop going. So it's so powerful to me oh, what you're saying. I, I love it. You're preaching to the choir. And, and you know, I, I'll just to, to kind of piggyback on that, how I really first began my recovery. Like I said, I was in my second marriage and I'd acted out sexually. Yeah. And that's when my partner said, you got to go get help. So I actually went to a 12 step group for sex addiction. Uh -huh. I found out I wasn't a sex addict. I didn't have the dynamic, but I kept going to the group because for the first time in my life, remember I grew up in a fundamental Christian church. Yeah, me too. You hide yeah. everything. Yeah. I, I had two degrees in religion. I was a, prior to that time, I was a minister for eight years. So I just, you know, you grow up like you just keep everything hidden. Don't let oh, anybody yeah. see, you know, anything bad, you know, that, and so I went to this 12 step group and it met like at 6 AM once a week. And like, I get excited about going because for the first time in my life, I just started sharing everything yeah. I'd never shared. And, you know, this was like a group of about eight to 10 guys. And, you know, some of these guys had some pretty messed up stuff going on in their lives. And they're probably thinking, what's this guy doing here? But I didn't <laughs> care because yeah. I was just sharing and revealing. And, and I remember I had one experience that this was really transformational. I can look back on it. That was over 20 years ago that um, I, I, I'd had uh, an impulse, a sexual acting out impulse that really scared me. And I, I, I thought, Oh, I, this, 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 I'm shame that I would even have this kind of impulse. So I went to my 12 step group, you know, like within a day or so shared it there. And they all just go, thank you for sharing Robert. You know, no, yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody's reacting to it, you know? Yeah. And I, and I happened to have a therapy appointment with a female therapist right after that 12 step. So I went to my therapist, shared it with her, and she just said, well, let's just take a look at maybe what this is about and why this came right. up. 
Yeah. No judgment, no shame. And I thought, yeah. wow, I'm batting a thousand so far. I'm going to go home and tell my wife. And, you know, usually I never would have told my wife these kinds of things because I used to tell her her middle name ought to be overreact because that's what she did in every situation, <laughs> which she actually, she never overreacted when I'd say that because she knew it was true. Yeah. So I actually went home thinking, all right, I'm batting a thousand. Even if she has a negative reaction, you know, two for three, not bad. So I, I, I got home. I said, come here. I need to tell you something. I told her what the impulse was you know, the context, what scared me. Uh, and then I went and told it to my 12, 12 step group. I told it to my therapist. I wanted to share it with her. I just wanted, I wanted to be open and transparent. And, and her response was, well, that, that kind of scares me a little bit and it doesn't surprise me. And, you know, our partners can see us more clearly than we think. Definitely. Um, yeah. Said it doesn't surprise me. I'm glad you worked, you know, went and worked on it. I'm glad you told me about it. And she never brought it up again. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. I mean, is that easy? You know, if you just be authentic and tell yeah. the truth, and especially yeah. practice with safe people. Yeah. And, and you, and you kind of just get the visceral feedback. You're not bad. You're, you're, you're just a human right. being. And what? That, it's it's, so that's such, it is, you know, it's making me think about how we have the tendency to think that when we share those, those, whatever's coming up for us, we, sh if we share it, something bad's going to happen. Whereas it's, it's the opposite kind of what you avoid tends to grow and yeah. then, it, and people can read it. You know, they, they will make up a whole bunch of stories because they know something's off, but I don't know what it is. And so they make up a whole bunch of stories or it might be the thing that's going on. And instead of just sharing it because the sharing it then diffuses it in big ways. Yeah. You know, I give the example because <laughs> again, I work with men a lot and a lot of the work I do is around relationship where there's, you know, yeah. dating and creating healthy relationships or how, how to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. And, I, and I will tell men that, that women in general tend to be a lot more energetically sensitive to things yeah. than we men are. Yeah. You know, women have more empathy in general. They tend to, you know, read body language and facial expression and tone of voice and eye movement. And it's just kind of wired into to, to the evolutionary DNA. And, um, and I'll tell guys is that for, for women that it's kind of like their security there depends on kind of knowing what's up. You know, and we guys will, you know, I'll give an example that, you know, that women are so sensitive to this, that, that a guy say, well, you're riding in, in your, in your vehicle with, with your girlfriend, wife, whatever. And, you know, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're holding back gas. You know, you don't want to fart. You just know it's going to be terrible if you do. So you're holding it in, you're kind of quiet. You're trying not to, you know, pass gas and your woman's there kind of reading something's up. And she doesn't know what, but she knows she can tell something's <laughs> up. You're, you're repressing, right? And that's the thing. Women can tell when men are repressing, but yeah. they don't know what. So they have to guess the worst possible thing exactly. that you might be repressing. So yeah. they, they, they go through, the, oh, he's thinking about that woman's breast back there on the street corner we just drove by. He's thinking <laughs> he wants to have sex with that woman because he was looking at her breast. And, you know, so all of a sudden the woman gets kind of wound up. And then finally, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the guy just says, no, I just didn't want to fart. And, you know, that, and, and so I tell guys, you know, it, things go so much better if we can just learn, just be open, be transparent, yeah. you know, have, have a sense of humor about yourself. And, and because especially in relationship, it is so crucial that, it, that in general, women will imagine the worst possible thing that might be going on. And, and we're just like absently minded 
thinking, you know, about something from work. Yeah. So completely unrelated. Yeah. Completely unrelated. So, so again, you know, the more anybody, men and women both, but since I primarily work with men, I say, you know, the more you can get comfortable just being you and, and to do that work with safe people and, and to get feedback that no, you're okay. Or yeah, here's something you can work on, but that doesn't make you a bad person. We all got stuff we can work on. Yeah. And then it, then it's easier in our intimate relationships to be open and honest and transparent and people feel safer with us. Absolutely. You know, and I, I, I could talk to you about this for hours and hours. I, I want to know, and, and for listeners, how would this show up in a work setting? It, in either, you know, a lot of people listen to your business builders, business owners. Um, sure. How does Mr. Nice Guy Syndrome show up in the work setting and or building a business? What are some of the pitfalls there? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and as I mentioned, I actually uh, developed a class about 20 years ago um, called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last, They Rot in Middle Management. And actually, I'm, I'm actually working with a, uh, another associate of mine to turn this into a, a workshop, a weekend workshop. Awesome. So the, the same ways we've been talking about that, that our nice guy syndrome gets in the way in personal relationship gets in the way it worked. Now, this applies both to entrepreneurs and to people, you know, working for somebody else, getting a paycheck. And, and in so many different ways, you know, if you think about it, if we're trying to become something to please other people, we're this chameleon, which makes, makes us not particularly trustable, means we don't take many risks. It means we, you know, we, we're not bold. We don't speak the truth. And if we're hiding things about ourselves, that means we're hiding our mistakes or our insecurities. Now, for example, you know, everybody, in, when they take a new job or when they get a promotion, there's things you don't know. There's things you don't know about how this company does things or if you get promoted or moved to a new department or given a new, new task, you don't know things. You know, if you build a business, there's things you're not going to know along the way. But what if you have shame that not knowing these things means you're, you're not good? You're, you're defective. You're going to be found out. There's this fear of being found out, this imposter syndrome thing. Yeah. So you keep it in. And maybe you do hours and hours and hours of extra research trying to find the answer. Or maybe you hide the fact that you don't know the answer. Or maybe, you know, and then you, you're stressed about it. And wouldn't it just be easier just to, to say you know, to somebody, do you know how to do this? Can you show me how to do this? Or where do I go find this information? Yeah. And um, I, I'll give you an example. I, I had... Um, uh, a client years ago when I, I was based in the Seattle area in private practice. And so Microsoft has its headquarters there. And uh, one of my clients, um, actually, this is a good story. And he doesn't mind me telling it. Um, when I first started working with him, he was in the PR department at, at Microsoft. And he was working all the time, taking his computer home, working nights, weekends. And his wife also worked at Microsoft. So <laughs> they were like working all the time. And he said, I don't want to live like this. And, um, and so I kind of asked him a little bit about, uh, about his, his day, typical day. And he showed me his schedule. He had like meetings all day long, meetings. So he was in meetings all day. So he never had time to actually do any work. And I, and I asked him, well, what do you, what was your aspiration in your career? And he said, well, I'd like to be, you know, a general manager, a VP maybe. And I said, okay. I said, one primary characteristics of vice presidents, one of the reasons they got there and what keeps them there is they say no. To a lot of things. And I said, how about we make it your mantra, VPs say no. <laughs> now again, the nice guy in him was saying yes to yeah. everything. 
Yeah. Can you come to this meeting? Okay, it's on my calendar. Come to this meeting. He was saying yes to everything and not getting his work done. So he started saying no. And within, I think, just a year or two, he, you know, as he was moving up, he applied to be the CEO at that time as Steve Ballmer. He applied to be his personal speechwriter and got the job. Mm -hmm. So that meant by learning to say no, i.e. kind of breaking out of those nice guy things, he traveled in Ballmer's private plane all over the world for two years, and he got to know everything there was to know at Microsoft. Okay, fast forward a little bit. This is near the end of his two-year stint as a speechwriter for the CEO. He calls me up and says, can I come in? I need to talk. And I said, yeah, come on in. And he goes, tomorrow, he said, um, Ballmer's got a meeting with all the VPs and directors. And, and he said, and he can't make it. And he's left me in charge of the meeting. And he said, I'm, I'm scared shitless. And, and, you know, so we kind of explored what was expected of him. But I said, okay. You already know everything there is to know because you've been writing his speeches for two years. And I said, so you know probably a lot of stuff he knows, maybe better than he does. And I said, he trusts you with it. He said, yeah, but what if somebody asked me a question and I don't know the answer? And I said, okay, at least three times during this meeting tomorrow, I want you to say, I don't know, but I'll check on it and get back to you. Three times. I said, that's your goal. You have no other, no other agenda for this meeting but to find three different ways to say, I don't know, but I'll check on it and get back to you. He calls me the next day and he said, oh, the meeting went great. It was fantastic. I actually only had to say it one time. And he said, everybody just you know, thought it was a great meeting, went well, and, but I had no stress, no anxiety. I just handled it. So I gave him permission to be human and say, I don't know. Or say no. And, and it's yeah. funny, when, when we can just start being more real, things work better. So this is just you know, kind of one little snapshot of how it happens in the workplace. Our inability to say no. Um, our inability to say, I don't know. Those get in the way. Another core piece for nice guys, as I said, it, it is basically codependency. All right, two things can happen. One, we can get codependent in the workplace and we get so busy trying to help everybody else with their work that we don't get our own work done. Or a lot of times we have codependent relationships outside of the workplace, Relate, you know, spouse, our children, our parents, and we're so busy like trying to fix all their problems, we can't be 100% focused at work. And, and so we can't take that promotion or we can't travel because, oh, no, this person will be upset. So our codependency uh, mm -hmm. gets in the way. And then just the fact of, of not being able to be honest and bold and transparent. Because what I tell a lot of guys that are, that are good, they're smart, but they get stuck kind of whatever that proverbial middle management is. I said the people that rise above middle management are the ones that are willing to risk, rock the boat. They're willing yeah. to take a risk. They're willing to speak up. They're willing to disagree. They're willing to say to, you know, the, the, the vice president or the CEO or whatever, I disagree with you and here's why. And yeah. you know, most people are scared to do that kind of thing. But, you know, you wonder how do people get into, you know, those higher offices? They do it because they, they were an outlier in some way. They weren't going along to get along. They rocked the boat and in some way it paid off. Now, most of them probably got fired a time or two before that kind of honesty and transparency actually, you know, you know, hit a home run for them. Um, but so those are just a few examples yeah, of how it can mess with us at work. So powerful and true. You know, I see it show up a lot in, in the, the fear of looking dumb, 
you know, like, oh, I might look stupid if I ask that question. So I'm not going to ask that question. I want to show up more vulnerably revealed, but I am afraid people will think I'm stupid. And, you know, I think in both men and women often feel this way, but in men, sure. it's also that expectation that they're supposed to know everything in that setting. Yeah. and be perfect and, and knowledgeable and you know masterful so it, Man, we men want to be masterful and here's the funny thing this goes back to the rough edges thing of people being attracted to people with rough edges and a personal example um near the end of, of when i was in private practice i moved my business and and i moved in to an office space that had like three or four psychiatrists and I, i'd never had that kind of access before and um and so what I quickly learned is like the, the pharmaceutical companies several times a week, they're, they're there having lunch, you know, in the office and they come to talk about their pharmaceutical stuff. They, they put limits on a lot of that. So they don't do it near as much. So I would go to these lunches every day and get a free lunch because they brought good food. And, um, and then, the, you know, they would kind of do a little pitch for their pharmaceutical and, you know, the psychiatrist already knew all the information. They just went for the free food and, you know, and, and I'd go, I'd ask questions, you know, I'm, uh -huh. I'm not, I'm not a medical professional. So I'm going, oh, I'm going to ask questions about this. Well, how does this work? Or how's that chemical reaction? What are the side effects or this? And you know what? The drug reps loved it. They loved yeah. it that somebody was finally asking them questions and they could show off their knowledge. They could yeah. kind of shine, you know, cause all the other shrinks are just sitting there eating going, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the drug reps are having to ask them questions to get them to talk about how do they prescribe this or where do they see it and so the beauty of it is you know I tell people people want to share what they know so yeah. if you're thinking I can't ask a question because people think I'm dumb the act usually usually the opposite is true yeah. if you can say hey I, I'm actually this isn't something I'm familiar with can you kind of walk me through how this blah 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 and people whether it's your boss or a co-worker or somebody making a presentation they want to tell you how yeah. it works because they like showing off their knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, for me, I, that would show up a lot too, where I would, I would tend to not want to ask a question. And then as I did that, you know, worked with your book, worked with codependency stuff, did all kinds of exercises to start to develop my self-confidence, which is that place of looking at within and going like, okay, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I don't need to show up nice. I'm going to be who I am and trust that whoever is going to like me is going to like me and I can't please everyone. You know, I'm not a people pleaser anymore. I just go. So it means ask questions in the moment. And I, it was really fun to have people, you know, it'd be like, let's say we're in a workshop setting and I'm learning and I'm asking all these questions and, you know, I'll have that moment where it kind of a previous fear I used to have would be to like, ask a question in public, look stupid. And then I just, I got over it. And I'm like, I'm going to ask as many questions as I want. This is my yeah. opportunity to learn. Yeah. And I'd have people come up to me afterwards and be like, thank you so much for being willing to ask those questions. I was afraid to ask. I had those questions. It gives them the courage to show up in the same way. Yeah. So it's it's You're so a role powerful, model. right? And it's, it's interesting how easy some of these shifts are. I want to ask you, what would you say for someone who's struggling with nice guy syndrome? What would three simple, in your book, I love how you give so many action steps for them to try out. Um, you call them, um, let's see, I, I was uh, scrolling through here, this, read, skimming through this morning again, um, activities, breaking yeah, free breaking activities. Breaking free activities. Right. Yeah. So what would you say are three breaking free activities that people listening could implement um, right away to start to break some of the nice guy syndrome? All right. Well, tell you what, let me give three kind of general ones and I'll give you a couple things for the workplace. Okay. Um, in general, it's kind of some of the things we've already been talking about. I, yeah. I, I say number one, 
go find safe people. And, okay. and with safe people, start revealing yourself. Because, again, nice guys don't think we're okay just as we are. So go start revealing yourself and just start talking about the things that you, you think people are going to think you're terrible if they ever hear about you. So there's number one. Number two is start working on being honest. Paradoxically, nice guys, while trying to be nice, are often anything but honest. Mm -hmm. and, and that was true for me as well. Um, I, I had to learn to, to practice being honest. Um, uh, you know, my mind, you know, if, if I thought I was going to be in trouble or somebody would be upset at me, I'd start rehearsing a story. So, so now what I do, if I find myself rehearsing any conversation, I just ask myself, are you going to have this conversation? Uh, no. Well, if I'm not, I, I quit rehearsing. If I say yes, okay. And then I'll ask myself, are you going to tell the truth? Yeah. Okay. Stop rehearsing. The truth doesn't need a rehearsal. Just go tell the truth. And so I, I, I've had to learn how to be honest, and it's taken work. Yeah. Um, and I slip back into the old pattern of, oh, no, I better tell it this way or leave that part out. So, but that doesn't serve us. And, and there, there's, this, there's this paradox that the more we, we let our fear rule us and we avoid the things we're afraid of, the greater the fear comes becomes. But the more we face our fears and lean into them, it diminishes the fear, and, and then it's not like fear goes away. We just learn, oh, I can handle it. I can be afraid and still go tag, take action anyway. Mm -hmm. So work at being honest. A third thing for nice guys and nice girls is to consciously start working at making your needs a priority. Mm -hmm. I remember I said covert contract number two was, I'm going to give to other people, then they'll give to me. So we're making other people's needs a priority in this kind of indirect narcissistic way that, oh, then they'll pay attention to me. No. You're an adult. It's your job. Make your needs a priority. Surround yourself with, with people and professionals and organizations and institutions that all help you get your needs met, that become your tribe, and, and do this very consciously. I call them cooperative reciprocal relationships, where everybody involved is getting something of value out of it. You and I right now have a cooperative reciprocal relationship. We're both getting value out of this connection. You and your listeners have a cooperative reciprocal relationship. They get value by listening. You, you get something of value of having them listen to you. So fill your life with that. So those would be the three things I'd say. They're not simple, easy things. I'm, I'm still yeah. working on all of them. Yeah. So it is find safe people to connect with, open yourself up to, uh, learn to make your needs a, a priority. That was actually number three. But number two, work at being honest and transparent. Awesome. Okay. Workplace. Um, two other things that happen in the workplace, and I'll just mention them. We can come back to them if you want. Um, but, but, Actually, one just slipped my mind, so I'll tell the one I was thinking of. One is either procrastination and not completing things. And this, is, this will really bite an entrepreneur on the ass, is, is putting things off, not completing. Um, it always eats you alive every time. Um, but two assignments that I give to people in my, in my class, nice guys don't finish last, they rot in middle management. And it kind of goes back to some things we were talking about just a minute ago. One assignment I'll give is I'll tell, I'll tell people at least three times in a day, or at least start out once in a day, once in a day, say no to some legitimate request. Somebody says, can, can, can you, you know, finish this report? Can you do this? Whatever. Say no without defending or explaining or any rationalization. Just say, no, nope, can't do that. 
that just scares the bejeebers out of nice guys and nice guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Every day, practice saying no to one legitimate request. Another one, believe it or not, that is just as scary is, you know, say between one and three times a day, ask somebody to do something for you that you can do yourself. Say, hey, while you're up, could you bring me a cup of coffee? You know, or while you're up, could you make some copies? You know, you can get up and do it yourself, but three times a day, ask somebody to do something for you that you can do yourself. This is powerful because I just now remembered the other thing that, that I was going to suggest that, that gets in the way for nice guys in the workplace and as entrepreneurs is around delegating. We mm -hmm. think we got to do it all ourselves. Mm -hmm. And especially for me as an entrepreneur, you know, I, I started being an entrepreneur before I think that term was even in use. Yeah. Um, you know, you wear all the hats, you know, you're, you're, you're the bookkeeper, you're the accountant, you're the sales manager, you're the customer rep, you're, you're the one that does all the work. And, you know, you can do that for a little while in a small business, but if you get in that habit, and, and this is true if you're working, you know, with someone else, trying to wear all the hats will never get you anywhere. One of the best skills we have to develop as entrepreneurs or working in, in, a, in a big company is learning to delegate to other people. Because, for example, again, you don't rise up into upper management doing everything yourself. You learn to delegate. And, again, the, kind of that nice guy in me thinks, well, number one, I, I'll do it better if I do it myself, which is not actually true. My accountant does a hell of a lot better job on, on my bookkeeping and my taxes yeah. than I would ever do. Right? Yeah. And he does it well and he does it you know, thoroughly. So uh, he's worth paying for. Um, but, number one, I think I'll do it myself. Or, number two, oh, I don't want to bother anybody. But, but we've got to learn to delegate because if, yeah. you're going to be, if you're going to rise very far above, you've got, you got to have a lot of people doing things for you. So now I, I've got three different full to part-time employees. But that was hard for me to get there, to get where I actually have people that I pay them and I tell yeah. them every day and every week, here's what to do. And, yeah. you know, and it lets me do what I'm best at. Yeah. Rather than doing the, the little thing like tweaking this thing on the website or responding to all of my emails, I, I pay people to do those things. And yeah. I can focus on writing, on developing programs, on doing workshops, on teaching my classes. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the better I get at delegating, seemingly the more money I make, even though I'm paying people money to do this. Right. Stuff, I yeah. make more money and more opportunities come. And I like my job better. Yeah, you you just things. get to spend your day doing everything you enjoy. Enjoy exactly. It's what's inspiring to you, and then the other team members are loving what they do. So you can take it to the next level. I think a lot of people have the you know a misperception that delegation costs money, but it should absolutely be making you money. It does it costs you money, but I love that you're pointing out for everyone listening. I think this is so powerful to recognize that if you're struggling with being too nice, you're going to struggle with delegation, yes. which is going to limit your potential in, in your money making and building your wealth. It's also going to have you being overwhelmed, overburdened, overstressed. And, you know, it, I think it's, it's useful to look at if one of the symptoms of uh, to know if you are struggling with being too nice is thinking about, am I struggling with delegation? Do I know how to say no? Mm -hmm. Do I know how to manage my time by having other people help me? 
Um, am I afraid to delegate because I think it's going to burden other people? Like, yes. All those things, you know, those are symptoms of like, I'm too nice. And then I would think it's, it really powerfully, or I know it really powerfully shows up in undervaluing yourself. So not charging enough. If you're too nice, mm -hmm. you feel guilty about charging what you're worth. That's, that's an excellent one right there. I'm glad you brought that one up. Whether, whether it's it, undervaluing yourself in the workplace by not asking for that yeah. raise or promotion, yeah. or if you're an entrepreneur, not you know, I, I remember every time I raised my rates as a therapist, it was excruciating, you know, uh -huh. you know going from <laughs> 60 bucks to 80 bucks, you know, yeah. and maybe yeah. you know, when I broke $100, and then when I broke $300, and then yeah. when I started eyeballing $1,000 an hour, it's kind of like, but how did how did I get here? And the funny thing is, people pay it. Yeah. It's funny. The, the, yeah. the more you charge, almost like you get better customers and it's they're, so they're happy to pay it. And I go, wow, <laughs> yeah. this this doesn't fit my nice guy logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So incredible. I wanted to ask you, so I wanted to connect because I missed the connection of you were talking about procrastination and and I missed the connection. I just wanted to highlight. Well, yeah, it. I, I, that that popped into my mind, so I wanted to throw it out. Um, yeah, procrastination can be a combination. I found of, of both nice guy syndrome and ADD. Okay. Um, and to give you an example, like I said when I was working, you know, in Microsoft territory, had all these um, uh, fairly young men, you know, that. Most of them were fairly socially awkward, but had good insurance. So you know, they were coming to work with me, um, and. They, 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 I remember these guys would try to convince me, many, many of them try to say, oh, I do my best work under pressure. And I do best at the deadline. Night before this project's due, you know, I'm up drinking Red, Bill, Red Bulls, eating pizza, blah, blah, blah. And I go, actually, all research shows people don't do their best work under pressure. You know, it's better to spread this out over time. And they were just, con you know, no, I really do do my best work under pressure. And then it dawned on me after working for a while, realizing, oh, these men have undiagnosed adult ADD. And people with ADD actually perform best if they have some sort of stimulant in their system. That's what a doctor will give somebody with ADD. They'll give them Adderall or, you know, some of the other stuff they use. To, and it has this paradoxical effect. It helps people with ADD focus and actually get work done. And being under pressure or being in a high-stress environment, like riding a motorcycle 150 miles an hour or rock climbing or waiting to the last night before your deadline, floods your body with adrenaline and cortisol, which are stimulants. So they make you more focused. Mm -hmm. And so they were telling me the truth, that, that they actually did work better under pressure. And I said, well, maybe it'd be better if we dealt with the ADD issues and so you could be more consistent in the workplace yeah. and not all stressed out and you know, killing your body the night before. But the other thing is, is this this whole nice guy syndrome because it goes back to, at least for me, when I'm procrastinating, it's usually because I think if, if I start it, I have to do it all right now and I have to do it all perfectly. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't have time to do it all right now and I don't even know how to do it, so I don't know how I'm going to do it perfectly. I'll wait. I'll, I'll do this other thing right now that I know I can just do and get done. So mm -hmm. I, I call it deceptive productivity. Yeah, oh yeah, this needs done. And maybe it does. Maybe I do need to get those emails <laughs> answered. But there's other things being left undone. That's yeah. a lot bigger deal. So for, and then that can also uh, show up in you get started on some stuff, but you don't follow through and finish it. And that's maybe a whole different dynamic. Still could be ADD, but yeah. it could also be if I finish it, now it's open for criticism. And nice guys uh -huh. don't like to be criticized. So, well, you didn't do this right, or you didn't get that right, or you're not done yet. So, oh, if I don't finish it, I can't get criticized for it. Yeah. So um, 
so I, I, I work with nice guys, well, work with all people around procrastination. Of course, it's going to bite you on the ass in any area in life, yeah. but it's to break it down. Right? You don't have to do it all right now. You don't have to do it all perfectly. What is just the next action required? What is just one thing that you can do right now? Just And, and it's usually as simple as go to my computer, open a file. Right. That's it. That's all yeah. you have to do. All right, yeah. go to the computer. I call right, it my one, <laughs> one, my one pull-up yeah. method. If I ever think, well, I should do some pull-ups. Well, I don't like doing pull-ups. My brain thinks I should do like 10 or 12. Yeah. And I think, no, just one. Do one pull-up. So yeah. once I do one, I can do another one. So all right, yeah. just one more. I got one more in me. So you do one, and then you can do two or three. So yeah. open the file. Write, just open a document and write one sentence. Write a title. Just do one thing, and then it gets easier to do the next thing. And then it's still just what's the next thing that's required. And you just keep doing that, and you break down this kind of nice guy mentality. Well, I got to do it all, and I have to do it all perfectly. And just, just do something. Yeah. And then do the next thing, and then do the next. Right. thing. So it's relatively simple, but man, our minds can freak us out, especially if we think everything's got to be perfect, which is a, a nice guy trait. Yeah, I love that. It's it, it's funny how often the most simple fixes are the ones we forget to implement. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I love I that. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I always say that to people, you know, when you're in fear or procrastination, it's like just start with one simple step you know, yeah. and then let it go. And then it starts to t reinforce in your mind as well. Like, Oh, I can do this. I'm capable. I'm competent. I'm confident. And then it starts a loop in a new direction. Share with us. Um, you know, I, I could talk to you all day long. So I, I was just looking at the time, share with us. What are your top three max potential habits that you think got you where you are today could be in your business. Mm -hmm. Um, overcoming Mr. Nice guy syndrome. You've given a lot of good tips there. So I think three max potential habits for right. business would be amazing. I like this question. Um, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm winging it. Go for it. <laughs> Curiosity. Ooh, good one. Consistency. Mm. And a willing to willingness to struggle. Ooh, that's a really great one. You know, people will tell me, Robert, you know, you, you live this purposeful life. You know, you, you, you live in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. You have a good life. You've written a book. You're influencing the world. You know, you get up on stage and talk in front of people and you seem energized and passionate. And people, you know, people will talk to me about purpose and passion. And I'm saying to this workshop I spoke at this weekend, I said, honestly, I've never asked myself, what is my purpose? You know, I, I've never have. And, you know, I know a lot of men's coaches say, man, you got to find your purpose. You got to live it with passion. I, I agree. We, we need to live purposely and with passion. But I've never actually set out to look for my purpose. But what I've done is I've been willing to struggle with things. So, like, when I said, you know, when I started going to, like, a 12-step group, all right, the, you know, I, I need to figure some things out about me. Why did I act in this way? What, 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 what do I need yeah. to do differently? Or yeah. then, you know, when I started hearing nice guys saying the same thing I was, well, okay, what's this about? So what I was shared like in the, this workshop this weekend is that everything that I do in my life, everything I've written, talked about, talked about here, have been stuff I've struggled with. I mean, I still bungle my way through relationships, and I had a PhD in marriage and family therapy at 29. I'm still trying to figure out relationships, and I keep learning, and what I learn, I then share with people. So there's a willingness to struggle in there. Okay, I'm going to struggle. I'll, I'll go to therapy. I'll get a coach. I'm in a men's program now. I've been in 
the last two years, I've had a coach and an immense program. We do workshops, retreats, we meet regularly. I've started smaller groups to help me with my exercise, with my writing, with other commitments. So, you know, I, I, I still struggle with stuff. I still go get these resources to help me. I'm still curious as to, you know, okay, why am I struggling? Why isn't this working? How come I'm procrastinating? I'm curious about yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I would say at least the feedback I get from people that know me, other men say, they'll say, Robert, I, I really respect your consistency. Yeah. You'll stick with stuff, you know, and get all the way through it. Because a lot of men can be a little bit impulsive, like, oh, I'll do this get rich scheme or I'll, yeah. I'll dive into this thing or I'll do this deep dive into this topic. And then, you know, three weeks or three months later, they're bored moving on to something else. So yeah. I think my ability to stick with something over time um, has paid off. Incredible. I mean, everyone listening uh, to me, that's such a simple and powerful roadmap to success. And to me, when you were talking about the willingness to struggle, part of that is so interrelated to the curiosity and the consistency, it right? Is. So as you it go, is. okay, I'm willing to struggle. I'm willing to start looking new directions, but that takes a curiosity and a, an awareness about yourself where you can start to look at yourself from that outside perspective and go, I'm curious why this isn't working. Now yeah. I'm willing to start over at kind of a baby stage of stepping into a new environment and looking stupid, failing, falling down, figuring it out because you're consistent. So those are incredible tips. Okay. I know that everyone here is going to want to connect with you. Where are the best places to find you? Oh, best place to find me is drglover.com. D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. Um, that's my website. It's got all my classes. It's got my workshops and seminars. It's got podcasts. It's got some free stuff on it. Um, everything stays updated with information. Um, I, in June of this year, I launched uh, a new book and a new website called Dating Essentials for Men. So um, that's available on Amazon, and the website is datingessentialsformen.com. Awesome. Um, I, I call it the, the non-pickup approach to dating success. I, I, try, I teach men to be authentic and real. And, you know, all these things we're talking about makes, yeah. makes us more attractive. Um, so, but yeah, drglover.com, they can go find everything awesome. they want to know about me. That's great. And then you said, remind me the um, program you said that you created specifically for business owners. Yeah. Yeah. The, the class is, is my longest running online class. I've got probably about half a dozen online classes, but it's called nice guys. Don't finish last. Okay. I rot in middle management. Okay. And as I said, I'm planning right now with, um, uh, uh, another guy who's actually, he's a, a business consultant and he's consulted with over 400 businesses in his career. And he and I are adapting that information into a weekend workshop. And right now, um, the, the date is not on my calendar, but it's, it looks like it's going to be June of 2020 in Seattle. Okay. Um, our, our first launch into the nice guys don't finish last day rotten middle management uh, workshop. Awesome. And then okay. you know, talking that, that probably that it ought to become a book after that. So that's, that's another project down the road. So okay. that will Great. be on the website within a week or two for sure. Those Perfect. Okay. Awesome. Wonderful. And for everyone listening, I'll have all of that in the show notes for you. Thank you so much for being here. This has been incredible. Amanda. Thank you. I had a great time. 
Awesome. All right, everyone. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. If you're loving what you're listening to, make sure you subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends so that everyone can be supported in overcoming Mr. Nice Guy Syndrome. I keep saying Mr. Nice Guy Syndrome, but it's Nice Guy Syndrome. (laughs) Empowering yourself in your business, your relationships, all of those places where we get stuck being nice and having all of the symptoms that we talked about. Uh, Robert has given some incredible tips. I highly recommend getting his book on Audible and in in hard copy because there's some great exercises in there. Yeah, buy um, the ebook too. Buy all three. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, seriously, I've I've listened to it twice. I have it. It's underlined. I mean, there's so much good stuff in there. So I'll put links to everything in the show notes. And I hope everyone has an incredible week where they thrive and feel alive.